Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Hey, listeners, welcome to another edition of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox with AERA, and I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Lynch. Chuck, how's everything going? All good. Um, happy to be in here in the office with you this week, Steve, and um, looking forward, you know, we're in show season, so looking forward to uh, PRI coming up. Yeah, we did. Uh, speaking of shows, we just got back from SEMA probably about a month ago. And I got to tell you, Chuck, things were good. Uh, it went better than I had anticipated, and I thought it would be good, but it was better than I expected. So true, Steve. Um, you know, <clears throat> we always have it in the back of our mind based on this past crazy couple of years that, and it it could go either way. And it went in a positive way. Um, traffic was good, and the quality of the traffic was good. And that's, that's what we've heard from you know, the vendors there. Of course, we're out um, trying to reach out to, to members and share information, but the guys who were there trying to, you know, uh, meet new customers, sell parts, move parts, it was good. Yes, uh, very good points, Chuck. And which leads us up to PRI, like you had mentioned earlier, and, and all signs are pointing to it's, it's going to be busy as well. We've had a lot of our members tell us that they're going and we'll be attending the show, so looking forward to PRI being just as good or better than SEMA was. Yeah, you know, and and like you mentioned, the members saying that, I like that you're sharing that because that's not, well, a hunch that it's going. We have members that are calling and saying, we are going to be there. We plan to see you there. That makes us feel good because we know that that's in the hundreds. That's right. That's not, well, yeah, we're going on a hunch. I mean, that, that's numbers. Yeah, and it's not coming from the show uh, producer or anything like that. You know, it's actually our members who are telling us, hey, we're going to be there, and it's we're looking forward to seeing you guys and stopping by the booth. So sometimes, you know, the show producers will always say, hey, this is a, it's going to be a great show and this and that. Well, that's what they want you to know. But That's I, what they have to say. That's what they have to say. <laughs> I agree. Uh, but coming from our members and seeing the ones that we saw out in Vegas uh, at the SEMA uh, Apex show, I think it was all things are looking good for our industry that people are wanting to get out and visit with everybody. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, Chuck. Well, it's December, which brings us up to a pretty interesting uh, history that we found out. And it kind of relates uh, to both you and I being from Indiana. Uh, so it's it's about the Indianapolis Brickyard was completed on December 14th, 1909, as workers placed the last of the 3.2 million 10-pound bricks that paved the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in a town just outside of Indianapolis in Speedway, Indiana. Since then, most of those bricks have been buried under asphalt, but one yard remains exposed to the start-finish line, and kissing of those bricks after a successful race remains a tradition among the Indianapolis Motor Speedway winners. In 1908, the auto headlight mogul and race promoter Carl Fisher decided to build a five-mile track 
that would give car makers a place to test to show off their vehicles. He signed up three partners and bought 320 acres of farmland on the edge of Indianapolis. Across the street from the Prestolite factory, uh, the original plans for Fisher's Motor Parkway called for three-mile outer loop and a two-mile course through the infield, but they were hastily redrawn when someone pointed out that such a long track would not fit in the parcel unless the grandstands along the straightaways were eliminated. As a compromise, Fisher and his construction superintendent decided to build a two-and-a-half-mile banked oval with grandstands on all sides. Um, that's a controversial thing. That's that's probably the thing that where people are, I love the place or hate the place. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but instead of the concrete surface that other race course builders were using, Fisher covered his track with a sticky amalgamation of gravel, limestone, tar, and 220,000 gallons of asphaltum oil. Asphaltum? Asphaltum oil. Uh, okay, I just want to make sure I said that correctly. That's the root word for asphalt. <laughs> yeah. For months, 500 workers and 300 mules laid layer after layer of the gooey mixture on the Indy Loop, and they pulled steamrollers across it, pressing the roadway into a solid mass. That's putting your ass to work. 300 mules. 300 mules. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty interesting how this whole track was laid, and we got more to talk about about, about it, but 500 workers and 300 mules. <laughs> so in August 1909, the Indy Speedway was ready to open. The first race at the new motor speedway was a motorcycle race on August 13th. This race was a disaster. The new track was so abrasive that it popped everyone's tires and the workers had to take a few days to sand it down before they could even continue. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's 19 what? 1909? And they're sanding this track? How are they doing that? How do you think they're doing that? Yeah, it's not the deal where today you see that big grinder. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so... I'd hate to see a little guy out there with the sanding pad out there in turn three sanding her down. Had on, Mr. Miyagi. Yeah. Sand on, <laughs> sand off. <laughs> so, anyway, even after that, the track was still a mess. As race car teams arrived at the speedway to prepare for the 300 mile Wheeler Shibler race, one historian reported drivers were quickly covered with dirt oil and tar and the track surface disintegrated in the turns and flying gravel shattered goggles and bloody cheeks driving at the indy was like flying through a meteor shower that's that's sounds kind of like driving up here in chicago lately you know (laughs) (laughs) it gets cold and pumps apart freeze cold exactly (laughs) on the first day of that first race car driver wilford bakuka and his mechanic were killed when their knocks flipped over and bounced into a fence post. Then, three more people died when driver Charlie Mers shredded a tire and went flying into the stands. After AAA threatened a boycott, Fisher agreed to suspend all races at the Indy track until he could put down a safer surface. So what did Fisher do? (laughs) Fisher decided on bricks because traction confirmed tests that they were less slippery than gravel and sturdier than concrete. When the brickyard opened, it was much less dangerous than it had been. 
Only seven people were killed between 1909 and 1919. And that's remarkable. You know, like that, that crash, the mechanic and the driver sat in the car together. Yep. And they were open top cars, no rollover protection. So that's, that's quite impressive. Um, the speedway remained brick for nearly 50 years. Today, as we know, the surface is asphalt. Except for that one yard. Except the one yard. <laughs> and, you know, I've been to the track. I'm sure you have two chucks several times. Many times. It is a uh, uh, pretty amazing facility. I can only imagine what it was like back in 1909, 1910, you know, that era. Kind of how people viewed it or thought of it, you know, probably like we do today. Yeah, I'm a bit spoiled. I've been to racetracks all over the world. You know, when I was stationed in Japan, I've been like to Suzuka. You know, Fernando and I were talking about the uh, racetrack in Rafael, Argentina that I've been around. Um, but going to Indy, I always get chills. You know, yep. there's just the aura. It is the mecca of motor racing. It's yep. just. It's pretty cool. It's cool. So if you haven't been, I highly suggest you go. Uh, it's pretty neat. They have a museum out in the front. Uh, kind of shows all the older indie cars that were there and some history of the place. But for us uh, on the podcast, we thought that was kind of interesting, us both being from Indiana, um, racing-type deal that deals with our automotive industry. So we thought it was kind of cool to give you a little bit of background on the how the 500 Indianapolis Motor Speedway really was formed. Absolutely. Which brings us to today's topic, Chuck, which is dear to your heart. Uh, as you worked at Jasper, uh, you dealt with this a lot and thought it would be a good topic for our listeners and machinists and machine shops to understand is incoming part inspection and qualification. Yes, absolutely. Uh, part qualification inspection um, are paramount and today even more so. All right, Chuck, so our topic is incoming part inspection and qualification, and what is that exactly? Okay, so um, in simplistic terms, uh, incoming inspection is exactly what it sounds like. Okay, I'm going to receive that part, and I'm going to inspect it before I do anything with it. Um, part qualification is more of a deeper dive. Um, that's where you're going to maybe you look at, we'll use the term critical to quality features. Um so when you buy a piston, you might look at, you know, where do you measure the size so you can determine your clearance, compression distance, you know, you measure three or five features, you know, but if you're going to qualify that part, you're going to go much deeper, you know, you might measure 25 or 30 features, weight, ring groove, the land, you know, the width, the depth, waviness, parallelism to to uh, the pin bore, um, you might, you know, if you have a CMM or something like that nature, you might be able to take a look at the, uh, at the barrel or skirt profile. Is it a sled runner? Is it a straight taper barrel profiles? Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of what you're doing, but 
but more importantly, and what really impacts most people would be your incoming inspection. Like I say, it's, uh, you kind of have to have um, a real plan if you're going to do the qualification. And you really have to have a plan for your incoming inspection. Um, and there's even uh, this term C equals zero. Um, there's a mil spec about, hey, if I buy this many parts, if I, you know, if it's less than 13, you do 100% inspection. If it's 13 to, to like 64, it's going to be this number of parts. And it shows you where you pick them from the group. You know, if you'd get bulk shipments and stuff and there's tables around that. This stuff's all well documented in, in the quality world um, for the frequency of the inspection and so forth. But what you have to kind of come up with is what are those critical to quality features I need to, to test for. Now, before we get too deep into it, um, is now you were in a production environment when you did your quality inspection of products and and parts, just as important for a, a one man shop to do that as well. When parts come in compared to a production shop. Right. Um, probably more so because you probably don't have a bank of other parts that you can just go to and say, you know, I can pull from. So you need to make sure that you got the right part, the right amount and the, you know, the right part. Some of the simple qualifications are, you know, Hey, these two valves are the head diameters, the same, the overall length and so forth. So, I mean, you don't want to waste too much time getting set up to not be able to use what you got. So yeah, it's, it's extremely important whether you're a big shop or, a, you know, a mass production shop. But when you're, uh, you know, a one man shop, that's really going, that can throw days off. You know, if you're planning mm-hmm. your work and those parts are there and then, and they're wrong when you've already laid out for it, if you inspect them, maybe you don't drag all those carts of engine pieces out because you already know, well, that's not going to work. I'll move to something else. But if you're expecting that to be right coming in the door, you know, Murphy exists at every corner. Exactly. I throw that out there a lot, but it's true. Yeah. So I think you might have touched on it a little bit, but if, if the one-man shop, and I'm just using that because that's, that's really the majority of our guys are one- to three-man shops. If they are going to do this part inspection, how do they or how would they know that the part coming in that they're measuring is correct? What do they check that up against? Okay, so <clears throat> you always have to have a control sample. And, you know, and that, that's jargon that's used in, in the quality world or whatever. That simply means you have to have something that you trust as a comparable part. Maybe it's the part you took out of the engine you tore down um, so that you, Again, I'm going to just use a valve for simplicity, the overall length, the head diameter, where the keeper grooves are, um, you know, those types of features. You need something to compare to. So that's your control sample. Oftentimes, I mean, most people, no matter the what size shop, they'll buy an OE part and say, okay, here's my control sample. And then everything else after that, that I'm going to look at those features and make sure they meet those features. Um, so... Again, usually it's the OE part. Um, if it's something you use, use for a long time and you have one of those parts around and now you have, because of current situations, maybe you have to use something that you 
haven't used before, then your control sample is maybe a part that you've used before. You know, it, again, it can be that simple or, you know, or, or buy an OE part. But sometimes if you're working with something that's been modified a bunch over the years, the OE part may be m more of a distraction and send you the wrong way. Now, when you, you were doing this when you were with um, the production mm -hmm. in the production shops, how long would it take you to qualify and verify that a piece was correct? Obviously, it depends on what the piece is. Um, I would say a piston you're probably going to spend a little more time on than you would a bearing. Right. So, um, and again, we're breaking this into two different components. Right. Just your incoming inspection is going to be an abbreviated list because sometimes, if you're going to qualify something, sometimes you do destructive testing. Say if I take a valve and I want to know what the tip hardness is and I'm going to use Rockwell C, well, i got a diamond penetrator and I'm going to make a dent in the valve um, for every action there's a reaction. So when I use that penetrator, it puts a dent in the valve. It also raises material. So I couldn't run that against a rocker arm. I'm, that may be causing the valve to be junk. Now most valves we could tip and we could probably salvage that. But if you do it on the stem, it's done. So you throw that part away. So the part qualification can be destructive and it typically takes more time. Again, you might be looking at 20 features as opposed to three. Now incoming parts inspection, if you have your criteria documented, you know, just put it in an Excel spreadsheet and I'm going to look at this, this, and this, um, you know, you can do something simply like, yeah, I've got an Excel spreadsheet. So, okay. If I'm going to measure the overall length of a valve, maybe I use a, a height gauge. Um, if I'm measuring a feature, uh, I might just need a caliper. Um, if it's a real precise feature, then, okay, now I need a mic or I need a CMM, you know, just put those documents down. It kind of help you plan your inspection. Um, one of the, one of the challenges sometimes is finding what the, what the tolerances are going to be, but. Again, you know, you also, as a machine shop, you know what you set up stem to guide clearances. and stuff. You also can set some parameters that I know that I can or can't accept this. And you you may have to give feedback to your supplier saying, you know, it has to be this to this dimension. And they can say, okay, we can't fit that bill or we can fill it. So, um, you know, you just kind of have to go with 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 those constraints um but again you know incoming inspection uh is very abbreviated like if you're measuring a, a bearing for a qualification it takes a lot of time too and sometimes it takes outside sources to qualify the material now when you do incoming inspection what are you going to do you're going to measure hey does it have the right oversize or undersize on the back of the bearing measure bearing wall thickness that's not a not a ton of stuff you can really measure as incoming inspection um that was going to be one of my questions i think you touched on it a little bit is what's the go no-go range you know obviously that's probably determined by you have to set that up right so um <laughs> in in some instances and it depends on the part and how much manufacturing uh, maybe your supplier does. Okay, so if you're getting through warehouses and so forth, you might get 
inspection print criteria and you know on a valve diameter on the stem diameter they'll probably give you the low and the high but they may not get into you know okay is this thing shot peen to what extent what you know what kind of condition like mars and scratches and like on valves there's all of these visual criteria that eaton you know as a valve manufacturer would have or basso as a valve manufacturer but it's not going to be in their parts catalog. So you're going to have to build some relationship with suppliers to get a deeper level of, of the criteria and what is acceptable. And they're willing to share that? In some cases, yeah. So like I say, it's, it's relationship building. Um, and they're probably the best people to educate you on, on the criteria if they're making the part. What's a critical to quality for them? Because, you know, I recently seen something where somebody was saying somebody's head was junk because they just tried to buy an out-of-the-box set of rocker arms and, and rocker studs. And then, okay, so what's the block? What's the camshaft? What's the base circle of the cam? You know, I mean, some of that stuff is your ownness to, to make sure that you're utilizing it right. They should tell you what their standards are. And you should know how they interrelate with other parts. Sometimes we're both at fault. If, uh, you know, that's what you try to educate yourself about the parts as much as you can, because if you go to them and your expectations are a valve stem diameter plus or minus a tenth, they're going to say, okay, we're done talking. You know, you want a thou for your guide diameter intolerance and you want me to hold a valve to a tenth you know we're done talking you know it's, they're usually plus or minus four tenths or five tenths you know they get a thou too so you really need to understand you know their manufacturing and and work with that criteria before you, you know I've, I've seen some stuff lately because lifters are a terrible issue everybody talking about flat tap it's going down and, so, and you know people setting a lifter on its top on that as cast area and then trying to measure the you know the crown of the lifter um if you try to take that to a lifter supplier they're probably going to laugh you out of the door you know because well you don't even know how to measure it so you're going to tell me that i'm wrong and you don't know how to measure it so i mean do yourself a favor and and reach out and try to get information on how that should be measured before you go qualifying things to some standard that doesn't really make sense because it only makes the situation between the two parties worse, you know? So go with a humble attitude and say, Hey, this is what I think I'm seeing. Can you educate me on how I should measure it? Because, you know, if I'm having a problem, maybe it lies somewhere else but I need to put all the pieces of the puzzle in the right order, and I need to know how to determine, you know, what what matters in the piece of the puzzle. Um, so, and again, those part suppliers will be willing to work with you if you go in with that type of attitude instead of the finger pointing of, hey, yeah. your product is not right, it's yeah, wrong, it, not happening, that type of thing. Yeah, you know? if you immediately <laughs> jump to its junk, yeah. then they're immediately going to be defensive right but like say um 
and getting that working relationship with that parts manufacturer to where you can exchange those emails or phone calls and get that information is is critical right if you don't make mistakes you're not doing anything the 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 thing that we try to do is improve our processes to the point where those mistakes are very difficult to make but we know that they happen but if you automatically just jump to you know, here you are sending me junk again. Yep. <laughs> you just set the, the tone for a fight. Right. So, you know, like I say, you try to have a humble attitude about it. Ask questions. Uh, get yourself educated. And, you know, I've... And those guys, are, those guys are human, too. I mean, they make mistakes just as much or, you know, just as easy as we could. Right. So, we've got the part, and it doesn't meet the criteria. What happens next? <clears throat> or what should you do next, I guess, would be my question. So, and this is, you know, something that I've been in a situation of, of, okay, we really need this. It doesn't meet the criteria. Can So sometimes you're like, can I change something that I do to accept it? You know, if it's a, sometimes if it's a length or a diameter or a, something of that nature, you might be able to adjust it. Sometimes it's just flat the wrong part. Um, so it, it's going to cause too big of an issue. And sometimes it's in an area, you know, like if it's a, if there's a big gouge on a valve stem or, um, you know, maybe pistons, a forklift went through the box or something, then that's where you're, you're going to be requesting returns, good authorization and, you know, and talking to customer service about it. Again, if it's something that's that's marginal or subjective, then that's where you really, really have to, you know, have the discussions about, I really need the criteria because to me, this doesn't look good. You know, what can, can you share how I need to measure it, what I need to measure, and then determine whether it's going to have to be returned, um, again, under some kind of return authorization Many businesses have a different term for that, but you have to get good data uh, compiled. Or again, it's it's another he said, she said, it, it turns into a fight. But I, everybody's got some kind of criteria, you know, for the, for the returns. But uh, it's kind of stumble on this a little bit because it can it can be a sensitive situation okay i'm not going to accept this as i said earlier you know approach it with a you know i'm i'm learning to attitude now if it's just wrong parts or they were damaged in shipping or something those are usually cut and dry now a lot of these guys will probably be buying from their warehouse i would say not many buy direct like the big production guys do so if they do have a part that doesn't meet their standards or uh, the criteria or anything like that, are they better off? They're probably better off to go, I don't know. Is it better off to go back to the manufacturer or is it better to go through their warehouse and do it that way? I guess. And maybe that's an unknown. We don't know. I guess that's really the the challenge, you know, ultimately. um, It's got to get back to the parts manufacturer. Right. If it's, if it's a, truly determined defect and that's where it's so important to be able to get the the specifications is it truly not meeting their specifications and 
then if it isn't, then that kind of that smooths out the bridges uh, to getting it returned. Um, so if the warehouse doesn't know the criteria, then they should work on getting that um, so that we know. Because it is going to be more difficult for the smaller shop to deal directly with the manufacturer. Uh, more so probably than ever. You know, there used to be a lot more direct relationships with manufacturing. Um, and I think that all of the manufacturers are using some distribution channels, the big warehouses and so mm -hmm. forth. That's just such a common thing. There aren't a whole lot of direct contact with the manufacturers. Right. Which is why I brought it up because I would say... I don't know a figure, but I'll just say a large amount of our members probably just buy through their local warehouse when they try to get parts. Right. And, and we used to have so many local regional guys that, that knew this, knew you, the customer pretty intimately and they knew the manufacturer pretty intimately. And it's changed that even our warehouses are bigger conglomerations. You know, they're, they have, 10 warehouses across the country or something of that nature. So they don't necessarily have the re relationships. And I think we need to work on building those back. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it helps the situation. And right now, I mean, with the supply chain issues globally, you know, that, that's why we're talking about this because we hear it. We see it in forums. Um, we take phone calls about it. We get emails about it. So we, we know that it's a problem, um, but sometimes we don't do ourselves favors by just getting all on an uproar really quick. Right. You know, um, I know it's, it's a challenge to do our work day in and day out, and then we get these um, miscues and so forth. Uh, but if, again, as I said, you know, like about the lifters, I mean, we need to – to make sure that we're checking in a fashion that agrees with how they would would measure or you automatically set up that he said she said fight and that's you know <clears throat> you can protect yourself by just creating some criteria and save and uh okay in, in this on this date this is what the parts measured this is what i agreed to when i bought it and you know it's it's a uh, probably in your best interest sometime to, to, you know, keep some documentation on what you agreed to buy. And one thing you, uh, it probably goes without saying, but if you get so part from manufacturer A and part from manufacturer B and it's the same part, doesn't mean that the criteria are the same. You oh. should probably do a document for each part from each manufacturer. Oh, absolutely. Be, because 350 Chevy valve can be made from multiple suppliers. Well, this guy's using medium chrome. This guy's flash chrome. This guy's gas nitrided stems. So they all have a different criteria. Um, compression buttons. You know, you look at the head of the valve, and this one's got a big deep cup in it, and the other one's almost all flat. One's machined. So because of their manufacturing practices, they could could be different and you have to know if you can accept that within your builds say if you're you're building a, a 10 and a half to one compression ratio engine and 
the little button in the head of the valve or cup could be the difference between the thing being in compression ratio tolerance and out. So, um, you know, that's, that's going to be your responsibility. They're both 350 Chevy valves, but do they impact your end product, uh, in a way that you can use or not use it? So, well, I think that's good discussion, Chuck. It kind of opens everybody's eyes to, especially in today's world, you know, with things the way they're happening and trying to find parts are hard to do. And when you get a part, you really need to make sure that that part is, you're qualifying that part and inspecting that part when it comes in instead of just, well, it's right, let's open the box, put it together, and here we go. You know, I think you gotta you got to do that inspect it and make sure that it's correct right you know as i was talking about that cylinder head you have to understand the inner relatability of the parts that are running together within that engine and it's a lot to know um you know a great friend of mine um he's a piston design engineer and uh you know when we had the conversation you know there's guys that have designed door lock mechanisms for their whole career they don't know anything else about the door. They know the door lock mechanism. <laughs> so we as engine builders, we got to know valves and lifters and timing components and what affects the timing chain, you know. I mean, this day and age, you take a look at the all the changes in oil and much of the discussion from the OEs has been we need better oils to support the longevity of, of timing chains. <clears throat> you look at the amount of pins in a timing chain, well – a thou per link well when it was 50 links and you got a little bit of wear it didn't move that much and you got hundreds of links and multiple chains well that's the livelihood of the engine potentially so um again you got to really understand a lot of different components being an engine builder and uh like it or not it's just the reality of it so um but it's also to me i think it's really cool because i'm you can't be an engine builder and not learn something every day or else you're living a pretty boring life because we always have opportunity to learn. Well, and you think of all the moving parts in an engine. I mean, there's there's tons of, there's a lot of moving parts and we deal in very precise measurements and thousands and half thousands and millions and surface finish. And, yep. And if those things are <clears> off <throat> just a little bit, it's just a catastrophic failure. And that's what we don't want to have. Right. You know, on some of the criteria stuff, um, I tell you what, if you don't own a machinist handbook, get one. Those things have so many specs in there that are just standards. Um, you know, how gears are made, um, you know, involute, uh, pitch angles, Chris, I mean, just all of these topics that you can learn a good deal from, uh, you know, I've, I've got several until they started going digital, you know, so I've got, I'm a book junkie myself. I've got books and books and books and I love that, but that's definitely one when you want to look at criteria, um, it'll tell you how to measure stuff and oftentimes what's important to measure. Yeah, and that, like you said, that's a good book to get. You can probably pick that up anywhere, uh, your local big box bookstore sellers or online. online somewhere. You can find one. So it's and pretty reasonable uh, mm -hmm. and, and get a lot of good information out of that. So, 
Well, Chuck, any other topics you want to talk about on part inspection or qualifications here before we wrap up? Um, you know, members, reach out to us. I've got a lot of experience. I've actually done some custom training on, on this subject. Um, you know, I can, like I say, I can definitely help out with uh, certain parts on what criteria are available and, and what tooling you need. Uh, again, that's, that's important. Um, you, if you tell a guy that uh, his valve stems are out of spec and you're measuring with a dial caliper, they're not going to take you serious. Um, if you're measuring hardness and it's because, well, this one doesn't make quite the knot on my head that the other one does, <laughs> then, then they're not going to take you serious. So, um, you know, we can, we can help out with some of that criteria and th that's, that's that part about building the bridge. You know, Hey, if, if you've got the ability and are willing to measure it the right way, then, then what you say means a heck of a lot more than, well, I just feel that it's not the same as the other part. Um, and, and you mentioned it there. And one thing I wanted to mention earlier and I forgot, so I'll do it now is there's no, they don't have to go out and buy any kind of special equipment. They have everything really in their shop now to do all this type of measuring and validating and all that stuff. Most in the for the most part now, if it gets to like pistons are quite complicated in total geometries and so forth. So, if you want to get into really knowing uh, profiles and shapes and stuff like you know that's a CMM and that is specialized equipment. Right. But by and large, most of us we have calipers and height gauges and and micrometers. Um, I think most of us have access. We're using tenth divisional micrometers you know i've written an article on uh some of the gauging rules you know your gauge needs to be four times greater than the spec that you're measuring to um when you have a guy who's measuring cranks with a mic that's not in tenths then you know his stuff is not going to meet standards uh that would be expected of a crank grinder and so forth. But yeah, by and large, our machine shops are going to have all the tools to, to, you know, properly measure stuff, you know, profilometers and things of that nature. Um, if you're going to be hold them to that criteria, you need to be able to measure to that criteria. And we're not cutting wood. So a tape measure does not count. Right. <laughs> Chuck did not mention a tape measure at all. So. <laughs> Machinist scale in certain areas. Yeah. <laughs> Tape measure. <laughs> Not so much. Leave that in the wood cutting box. That's right. All right, Chuck. Well, thank you for your insight on this. It's been very informative, and I think it will help our listeners uh, about how, how critical it is to look at this incoming part, ins part inspection and make sure that things are correct before putting that engine together. For sure. Chuck, an event coming up here in January is day three and four of the Engine Performance Expo. And some might remember that days one and two were actually done back in October. October, yeah. October. 
So they are just continuing this on in January of days three and four. Broke that up into two sessions, I'll call it. Uh, so day three will be January 13th, uh, which I believe is a Thursday. And January 14th will be day number four. And that will be down in Piney Flats, Tennessee. And it is online, if I remember correctly. Correct. Some of the topics that they're discussing here uh, in this Day three and four, uh, head porting, valve grinding, uh, seats and guides. They got some engine builder interviews. Uh, uh, Mark Cronquist, uh, he was with Gibbs, I believe, or JGR. Right, yeah, Lake's got a lot yep. of uh, experience with him. Uh, doing some piston measuring, which kind of relates to what we just talked about uh, with part inspection. Um, what else do they have there, Chuck? They've got the engine giveaway, um, I think. Hidden Horsepower did a podcast with uh, Ben Strader on they actually ran the engine and that's that engine is a bit of the reason why we're in the uh, doing day three and four because uh, missing parts so <laughs> just kind of goes along with our podcast <laughs> kind of today. the kind of the theme this past year <laughs> uh, uh, we got some cross hatch angle interviews. Um, Pro Charger Balancing, um, there's a lot of good online information that will be done during those two days. And if you need more info or like to register for this event, please visit EnginePerformanceExpo.com. There you can sign up. It is all online. Uh, they are having some in person, but I don't know exactly how many, but uh, the majority of it will be online those two days in January. And that, again, is January 13th and January 14th. Okay, Chuck, uh, brings us up to our next episode, which actually the topic actually came up on our tech line where a member had called in about magnetism and cleanliness, uh, both part and environment on the cleanliness part. But the member was asking about magnetism, and I think you took that call. <clears throat> right. Actually, this has come up uh, a couple of different times because there's some bulletins that have been published from original equipment engine manufacturers, you know, Cummins and Cat and so forth. Um, so without going into it too far, you don't want to um, take away too much of the content, but, you know, we do a lot of things that potentially induce magnetism into our engine components. Uh, engine failures can induce magnetism so if you don't have a clean environment you have magnetic parts then that's a bad situation not good <laughs> um so um anyway we'll do a deeper dive into that and we can give some quantitative numbers there are specs around this um it's the the industry of non-destructive testing um we refer to, you know, magnetic particle in inspection and so forth. All of these things, they, they interrelate. So, again, without giving it all away, we can, uh, we'll get some criteria uh, for you and some specifications around that. Again, it's, it's well documented and the, what's allowable and so forth. Um, so, we have that. We've got some tech bulletins about that and so forth. And so, hey, let's share what we know. And one thing I'd, I'd like to mention also is um, kind of back to that, on the same lines of the Engine Performance Expo, AERA is going back to their regional conferences this year. We are bringing those back, so that's exciting for 2022. Uh, we've got four great conferences scheduled, one at SCAT, 
crankshafts, I believe, in May. Uh, De Anza College up in Northern California is going to do one in June. Um, we got Dave Steiny's facility up in TriStar, TriStar Engines, Engines up Wisconsin. in Baldwin, Wisconsin, which that'll be a good one. Uh, more to come on that one, but uh, if you're into performance work, uh, good place to see, but there's also a little event that'll be happening with that one. So more to come on that. Can't let the cat out of the bag just yet, but that'll be a lot of fun. And then we got Wagler competition in August, uh, late August. Yeah, in conjunction with the uh, Shide event. So in that same week, so it'll be a busy week there. That'll be a busy week for sure. So glad to have that back. If you don't know about the regionals, <coughs> excuse me, it's a one or two day event. Vendors there that set up tabletop exhibits. We try to get four or five presenters throughout the day to do technical content. And it's a good way to meet those guys one-on-one where if you go to the big trade shows like PRI, SEMA, sometimes you don't get to talk to who you really want to talk to. So it's kind of a scaled-down regional-type event where you can come in the day of or the day before, have a motel room. You don't have the big expense of flying all over the country trying to get to these events. So. Well, in today's discussion, we were talking about how do we get the information, these critical to quality checkpoints. And typically, the guys that are doing the presentation that are tech and skills regional are the manufacturer. So they're going to tell you how this part is made, what the tolerances are. Of course, everybody has certain things they don't want to give away because they don't want their competition to know how maybe how they weld the balls onto push rods or something of that nature. Um not everything gets shared, but the stuff that really matters in in the functionality of it and the interrelatability, the interrelationship of a lifter to a cam, a, a bearing to a crank, things of that nature, that's where you can find out the nuts and bolts of, of the engine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, we try to not have the, it to move too commercialized. It's a tech and skills regional. You know who the guys are that have the parts. Right. This is the tech. Right. Right. And they're good events. Uh, for those that have been there, you've you've seen them, um, have been to them. You know what they're all about. But I think it's, it's glad to be getting back to those. We've, <laughs> I tell you, since this COVID hit, everybody has been asking, are you going to do those? Yes, we're going to do them. Biggest part is the host has to feel comfortable hosting it and having 70 to 80 people show up. So... Uh, we've got four good ones in line, speakers, more to come on that. Uh, you can visit our website to know about those as well, as you'll see them in some of our publications, the Engine Professional Magazine. Uh, we got an article coming up in the Q1 about those. So look for that stuff coming out here in the future. And if you have any questions or comments or title or topic discussions that you think Chuck and I should talk about, feel free to email us at eppodcast at aera.org. We'd love to hear it. We've got a lot of topics, but if there's something critical you guys want to hear, please let us know. Well, Chuck, uh, this will bring us to the end of the show here for December. Next year, uh, 2022, AERA turns 100 years old. So we'll be having a lot of topics of discussion about that. So looking forward to that. We look pretty good for 100. (laughs) Speak for yourself. Well, okay. <laughs> the association's looking good for her. The association is Chuck. looking really good for uh, for being around that long and we've got some history that I think will be good to talk about in that. So, looking forward to doing a little bit of that as well. Well, Chuck, uh 
we'll see you next week at PRI. That's where I'll be at. So I'm sure you'll be there too. So see you there. All right, buddy. Looking Take forward. care.